everyone, I'm Cheryl McNeil Fisher. My co-host Kathy King and I want to welcome you to Writing Works Wonders. We want you to feel encouraged and inspired and know the wonder of writing. We are so glad you're here with us. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Writing Works Wonders. Welcome to Writing Works Wonders. Today, we're discussing breaking into advancing your success in the submission process. You might be submitting for publication, contests, or grant. These principles apply to most submission type. Good afternoon, Cheryl. We're so excited to be discussing this essential topic today. Hi, Kathy. It's always a great day when we're working together. Let's just get right into it. How can people find where to submit their work? There's several different things to consider. But I think the most important is that you've got to find the best fit for your submissions. And this is about audience and topic. One of the strategies we've heard different authors on the show talk about is you should be reading and listening to different publications that are relevant to your genre and that accept submissions. So Mago, you might be writing novels, you might be writing short stories, you might be writing poetry. If you're reading magazines like the Writer's Magazine and others that accept submissions or have postings from other publications, you'll find out about submission opportunities. But the most important thing is making sure you're a good match for the audience, the age group, academic, non-academic, general interest, specialized, and the topic and genre. The next thing is when you're trying to find where to submit your work, you need to find the guidelines and deadlines. So how will people know what the guidelines are for each publication? Where do they find them? Well, guidelines and deadlines are very important. They're simply just as they sound like. How do you submit? What are the parameters? What are the limitations? And there's different ways to find them. One of the first places to look is a website for the particular publication. There should be submission button, and then you should be able to find guidelines and deadlines. Yeah. Another option is to look in the back of a publication. Very often they'll be listed either in the front or at the end of a publication. They'll post them every time that publication comes out. And if you still can't find it, email the publication, or if you can't find contact information, Go to your reference librarian. We're hearing this more and more through your regional library. Contact your reference librarian or your local library. We know what the definition of guidelines are, and it should be self-explanatory, but I think we should understand why are these guidelines so important? What if they've written a really great story, but they forgot to double space and it comes in single space? What then? Very often, we used to say it would go in the circular file. Now they'll just hit the delete button very often. In rare cases, they might return it to you and say, please revise. But that's rare because they get so many submissions. Why is that important? The way I look at it, because, you know, I've been an editor of journals. I'm an editor of books. If somebody that's submitting their work can't pay attention to the guidelines up front, when I give them edits to do later on, what's the likelihood that they're going to follow through accurately at that point, right? So it's telling right. people already up front, 
your attention to detail, and even how serious you are about your writing and your submission. Even more important than that, if they say, be sure to include this information and that information, or structure your submission in this format, they're telling you how your submission will be evaluated. So if you don't follow those guidelines, you're pretty sure not to get a high score in the evaluation system. Because some of them even say, do not put your name on the manuscript. Absolutely. And actually, do you know what they call that, Cheryl, in the larger society? They call that a blind submission. For our uh -huh. community, that's a, a little bit bizarre, but that's what that term is actually called, is a blind submission where the reviewer doesn't know who submitted it or where they're from, so they can unbiasedly evaluate it. That's the purpose. And I mentioned the term because sometimes you might see that in a submission. It might say, this is a blind submission. I don't know how much that is still being used because of politically correct and disability issues. I'm hoping they're phasing that term out, but mm -hmm. that has been used for a long time. Kathy, you have published books and articles, manuals. You've been editing, doing this for a number of years. Would you go through the submission process, how people need to be prepared, what they need to do with their work before and during this process to get ready and then to submit? At many conferences, we would do sessions on this because it seems like people don't understand and can be so much better prepared in this area. So this is a really important part, Cheryl. The first part is writing, editing your work, and getting it critiqued by others. And when you get those critiques and feedback by other writers, people who know that area, then you edit your work some more. <laughs> Now you find the right place to submit your work. When you submit your work and you're making sure it's following the guidelines, you might have to make adjustments before you submit it. Then you make sure you proofread it. And for those of us that are visually impaired, we make sure that in some, we have a sighted editor that can review our work before we submit it. That is not cheating. Nobody, no professional submits work that they don't have somebody else proofread it for them. We need to be clear about that. For some reason, people don't think of that or are not aware of it, but that's part of our professional writing process, getting feedback, letting people review it. Then we submit it. We're following the deadlines. We get feedback. In some cases, you'll get a single response. Now, I had close colleagues that were very well known in the field. And one of them said something that helped me immensely, Cheryl. She said, and this was a woman that was so well known in my field of adult learning. She wrote most of the major textbooks on adult learning. She said she could paper the walls of her living room with rejection letters that she had received. And when I heard that, I felt such great freedom. Why should I be upset when I get a rejection letter if this person had received so many of them? It's part of the process. It's part of how we grow and learn. So instead of looking at rejections or feedback that's telling you what you need to change as negative, you say, yay, I have some constructive guidance to make me better. And I have a systematic way that I go about using that. But the next step in the process, you've submitted it, 
you get feedback and usually they want some things changed at the very least. You make a list of what they want changed, make a bullet list, this is my system, and you enumerate those and then you check off as you go through and make those changes. When I send back my revision, I send back that bullet list to the editor to let them know I found the things you wanted changed and I have addressed them. Very brief, but it shows I've done my homework, I've been accountable and I resubmit it and I wait to see what the results are gonna be. And then it's kind of like with the shampoo instructions, repeat and rinse. <laughs> it's right. You submit, you submit, you get feedback, you improve. You submit, you get feedback, you improve over and over. Gradually, you begin to see patterns, what you need to improve and how you can extend your work and improve it even more. You're getting submitted, but you see another horizon that you can improve even more. And so you reach for that. It's a great process. I received my share of rejection letters, but when I got them, I didn't just throw them out. at the bottom of four of them were personal notes, but the notes said, this is not what we're looking for, but to keep on doing what I was doing, that I, I had something good. And then there was the blue postcard. I don't remember which editor sent it to me, but the blue postcard had the entire side of that postcard, the handwritten note. So when someone read that to me, the editor suggested that I take some things out, how I can enrich that manuscript and to keep on doing what I was doing. Those have meant the world to me. And then just recently in the past year, I sent out six via email of a new manuscript. And there were only six because it's to a specific area where my book takes place. And two of them came back with personal notes. Again, encouraging. You know, how else are you supposed to learn? Who else do you turn to? They don't send your work out to just anybody. They, if you're writing children's books, they're sending them to people that regularly review and understand children's books literature. If you're writing academic in chemistry or history, they send it out to specialists in that area. If you're writing poetry, they send it to people who specialize in your type of poetry. So when you get that feedback, it's focused on your area. It's very hard to get that kind of feedback otherwise. One of the things that I had to do now, this happens in academia, and it could happen in other areas where you submit and they send you several reviews back. You might get three or four. It's not unlikely. One reviewer may say the description was in great depth. And a third reviewer might say the description did not have enough detail. Well, what are you supposed to make of that? I found that incredibly frustrating at first. Well, what I did was being the math science person I am, you can probably expect I made little charts, I made bullet points, and I tallied them up. And I took that information and said, how many said this? How many said that? Okay, let me look at those and now go back to my work and see what I see. And also take the list to a trusted colleague and say, be honest with me, look at this feedback. Here are the main points they've brought to me. Tell me which ones seem accurate because I'm getting conflicting information. Now, this might sound really bizarre, but I've also written a couple of textbooks. And the last book I wrote is written for the general public. It's on innovative technology and adult learning. 
but it's also used as a textbook in universities. My publisher sent it out to three or four experts in the field. And those reviews came back and Cheryl, it was five, six, seven pages of recommendations. The only way I could wrap my head around that was to put it into a spreadsheet format. And I was cited, thank goodness at the time, <laughs> because it ended up being 14 pages of a mm. spreadsheet of edits I needed to do. So then I grouped them by area so that I could tackle this gradually. I wasn't going to do it in one day. I knew this was going to take me a few months to work through this. I was teaching doctoral students at the time. I mentioned it to my doctoral students. They were shocked. They said, you, Dr. King, have to make changes? And I said, what do you think? Of course I do. They were surprised at that. And I'm like, every writer has to. And if you're smart, you're thankful for the changes. It's a tremendous amount of work. But when you're doing especially a textbook, you're talking about nonfiction. There has to be accuracy. You're trying to address an audience. You're trying to keep up to date on the literature, et cetera. There's a lot of facts and details that you're trying to keep track of there. And they were giving me new sources and information that I was incorporating. So I was thankful for that information. I didn't push it off and be angry about it. It's improving what I'm producing. It helped create a better product. But being transparent about that as authors to other writers and to students in the field is really important that we're always learning and we're always looking to colleagues to help guide us to improve and to make better products in our writing. It's not a one and done process by any means. The other thing I want to mention, Cheryl, is that the reviews that you get of your work, rejections you might get of your work, are not reviews or rejections of you. They are a review of a particular piece that you have submitted. And you have to separate it from your identity. It might not feel great. You might be disappointed, but you've got to move past that in a day or two, read it, put it aside, and come back to it in a few days or next week and say, okay, how do I make a better product out of this using what they gave me? We all go through this. And if you need to talk to somebody about feeling down about your reviews or rejections, reach out to Cheryl and I. We'll be happy to talk to you. We've been there. You're hearing us talk about it. This is a common experience that authors go through. And that's why we're mentioning it. We hope reviewers. Absolutely. And we hope yeah. reviewers are kind. Unfortunately, they are not always. And so you might need to reach out to a colleague about that as well. If you feel that your a reviewer has been very harsh, et cetera, you might re have to reach out to a colleague. When I do reviews, I try to always put positive up front and I try to be very specific Absolutely. or kind with what I'm recommending. And if I have serious concerns about the work, I put those in private notes to the editor, not to the author. There's usually a separate area for the reviewers to do that. If I feel that this is in no way, shape, or form ever going to be ready for publication, I let the editor know that. I am not going to take somebody's ego down and destroy them by them receiving a comment like that. I might be strange in that, <laughs> but I respect writers and authors too much. And I know what it's like to have to grow into your writing ability. I just recommend that to people. Reach out to your colleagues. I agree. And I agree with anyone wanting to be in touch. Now you have a phone number that you can leave us a message. You can reach us by email, going to the website, using the submission form, 
we need to have people that can cheer us on. You know, another important topic, Cheryl, is understand, you know, um, and think about these editors. They're receiving all these submissions, or maybe it's for a contest, or maybe it's for a grant. All these recommendations apply. What are they looking for? What do they need from us? The first thing is they need us to be relevant to the submission we're making. <laughs> I edited a journal on adult learning, and I can't tell you how many submissions I got to that journal that were about teaching children. Now, that does not anywhere fit the scope of an adult learning journal. So I couldn't do anything with it. I couldn't even send it out for review. I had to send it back to the author and say, you need to find a different journal. This does not fit. Most editors, I don't think today, because they're so deluged with submissions, would take the time to do that. They would just delete it or put it aside, okay? But relevant to where you're submitting it. Do you fit within the guidelines for the grant? Are you in the right subject matter for the contest? Are you in the right genre and audience for the submission publication that you're submitting to? And then following the guidelines and making sure you proofread your work before you submit it. It's very frustrating for reviewers and editors to receive work in any category and it be full of typos. Even five or six typos is too many if you're submitting five or 10 pages. It should be really clean. And that can be done by handing it to colleagues for them to review it for you before you submit. It shows you're careful and paying attention. Also, your editors will sometimes be behind schedule, sometimes forget to correspond with you. I had to do this a number of times with editors and say, dear editor, you said that I'd hear within five weeks. It's been 10 weeks and I have not heard. Could you tell me anything about my submission, where it is in the process? Thank you for your consideration. Short, brief, kind. No accusations, no name calling, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes I'd get back, oh, I'm so sorry we were on spring break or, oh, I'm sorry we lost your submission. Can you submit it again? I mean, all sorts of things. And sometimes they say, oh, I had it right on my desk. I was sending it out to you. But to my knowledge, none took offense to that. But you notice I didn't send it week six when was told I'd get it on week five. I waited a, more than a month after when they had told me, giving them room to breathe. They're human. They're overrun. And then if there are deadlines and they say, the contest, the grant, whatever ends Thursday at 12 p.m. Do not submit Thursday at 1 p.m. and expect to be considered. Mm. You will not be in most cases. Don't expect it. That's being professional. And if you're professional about your work and professional in the way you relate to your editors, you will develop a reputation not only with that publication, but with others. And you'll learn more about how to work with publications, contests, or grants all of those, and you'll get better at your submission process. Cheryl, sometimes we have to build a connection with publishers. I've done that in my field when I was a new professor just out of my doctoral studies. I was trying to figure out this whole publishing world. I came from a family that was working class, and I was first generation college, never mind <laughs> as a professor. I didn't really know the system. I decided to develop relationships with publishers and talk with them. I know you, and so does our audience. I suspect you have built relationships with 
publishers for very specific reasons. The way I went about doing it was usually we had book fairs or convention vendor rooms and the publishers for our field would be there. And of course, I'm doing my research and I'm writing articles or papers, but they might not be ready for submission. And I have some ideas on book, but they're not ready yet. But I would go and visit the different publishers, look at what they had on their displays, get an idea of which ones even were in the areas that I was interested in, which was technology and education and adult learning. And if they had several books in that area and they weren't too busy, selling things, I'd come back around when they weren't busy and I'd stop and talk to them, not just a rep. I would try to find one of the leaders of the publishing house. Very often they'd be there and I'd start talking with them and say, are you looking for additional titles in this area? Do you have an editor for this specific area? What sort of titles are you seeing a need for right now? And that's how I built relationships with my publishers that I worked with over the years. And in fact, the very first conference I went to, I walked up to a major publisher, asked a few of those questions, and the woman said, we actually need one chapter for a book on technology in this area. And I looked at her, I said, I can do that. She said, when can you have a draft to me? I mean, it just fell right in my lap, but it wouldn't have if I hadn't asked questions. Cultivating those relationships means that you're doing your homework to understand the audience and focus and the need of the publisher, because they can't just produce tons of books that don't sell. <laughs> they know their market. They know what sells and what's not selling. And so they have an idea of what they're looking for in that. And different publishers have access to different markets. They've cultivated them. So finding the right fit for your work is really important. Before I lost my sight, I loved working in the room. I loved networking. I had no problem going up, sticking out my hand and saying, hi, I'm Cheryl, nice to meet you. When I first started doing title work, I went into a company that was one of the top in the county and gave them my card, said I'd like to work for them. And the owner said, we'll give you a call when we need you. Well, I went outside and I had, my friend was next door at another company. And so I thought, well, I gotta wait for her anyway. I'm going back inside. And I did. I went right back in and I said, you know, I'm gonna call you on Monday because this was Friday. How can I work for you? Can you tell me what I need to do in order to start working for you? And he said, come on into my office. And that was beginning of a wonderful many year relationship working for this man being trained till I lost my sight. As a visually impaired person with, I consider what they would say a high partial, I still was able to see people for the most part. I was able to go up, shake their hand, know who people were. Today, that's not possible. I'm fortunate if I recognize their voices. So when I go somewhere, I have to consider if I'm getting a ride, the person that I'm riding with because I'm in the car with that personality and I will be with that personality for a number of hours. If it's a place where I have a table set up, I appreciate my friend who not only just sits with me, helps me set up and sits with me, but she will draw people in. If someone's just glancing or maybe they're about a foot away from the tables, 
she will say, this is the author, Cheryl wrote these books. And this, their attitude just sparks right up as soon as they hear that because they want to meet an author. You did? Oh, these are beautiful. And if there's kids there, I can say, would you like some coloring pages? Me. If I want to go somewhere, as we're talking about these book fairs, I want to make sure I'm taking someone with me who's got that drive and passion that I do, and who better than a teacher who's going to really be interested in books and take me around and tell me, well, this is the publisher and helping me get to the people I need to speak to so that I can hand them something. Let's talk about for a minute contests specifically. What do you have as recommendations for contest submissions? Do you have some critical tips? Check with pw.org, Poets and Writers. They have a great database of contests, fellowships, grants, and they go by the deadline date. You can do a search for genres, the cost of the contest, grant, fellowship, submission fees. So go on there, pw.org, and that's free. You do not need to become a member. You do not need to pay for a membership to their magazine, although it might be nice. You might enjoy it. Writer's Magazine also. They also have a, an annual list. They I found them last year, the 2020 list of writing contests. So in Safari, I was able to place a bookmark saved to my home screen. On my iPad is an icon, and it automatically updated when I clicked on it in January, and now it says writing contest for 2021. So I can periodically go in there and I check and see what's happening, what's coming up. I also put them on my calendar. I put deadline dates, but at least two weeks prior to the actual deadline date. So that gives me alerts that the deadline's coming up. And if I haven't submitted, I better get my butt going if that's what I want to do. If it's a contest that you think you'll want to enter again next year, put it on your calendar as annual and you'll get that reminder next year. Be sure to put on put on the calendar the date that they start accepting entries, not your deadline date, because you want to be alerted that this is coming up and you ha you you know you want to enter. And even by then, you might have something already prepared for that particular contest because you'll know it'll be coming up next week. You can submit to guideposts. They're free. And they accept submissions all year round. You want to look for unsolicited submissions, and that means you're able to submit without an agent. Chicken Soup for the Soul has several publications they do annually and biannually. Uh, Authors Publish, it's a newsletter, and they send out weekly publication, very short, but they also send out once every other week a list of contests or journals that are accepting unsolicited submissions. They'll go by genres sometimes of publishers. So that's a really great one because they don't inundate you with different things to buy, workshops, etc. Writer's Digest is, is a good one, however, you will get an email almost every single day from them. But keep looking. Look for local your local magazines. Look in there. Check with your library. Get on their newsletter so that you can check and see if there's any local contests going on. But just keep looking. Be open. And keep writing. Just try some of the ones that maybe you don't care if you win or lose on that. 
just send it out. Just keep writing and taking a chance. If you want to submit your work, submit it. And there are many out there that are free. And you can practice by submitting it to us. We are so excited because we've done our first prompt and we've received submissions back already. So it's exciting for us. You have a choice whether or not you want to be put up on our website or your bio that you've been published on Writing Works Wonders website. So there's benefits to that too. We are going to be having our first contest opening on August 1st. The closing date will be September 30th, 11.59 p.m. And we'll be giving you more news about that. So stay tuned. Tune in to us next week with Annie Chiapetta, who will be with us on July 30th. And she's going to be teaching us about audio prompting. And that means a lot of us who are visually impaired, we're on that in-between stage. We don't read Braille, yet we can't read print anymore. This is for you that, is, that are sighted as well, because some of you may get nervous with cue cards or having something written, and you may not be able to work off of notes. There are ways to have a device and have prompting in your ears, whether it's a whole sentence or just words, to help you have a good flow as you do your speaking. So join us with Annie. She's experienced at this. I'm excited. Kathy and I are both excited about this. So we have so much more planned. We have an open mic coming up in August. It'll be open mic for short stories, five minutes long. Give us your suggestions. We love to hear them and we are definitely open to them. If you'd like to be on our show and have be interviewed, contact us. And until we meet again, keep on writing. Excellent. And they can find out more by going to the website, writingworkswonders.com. So if you're interested in participating in this, helping to publicize, offer ideas, participate in the program in different ways, we'd be welcome to consider. Thank you for being with us today. This has been an exciting, informative show. Cheryl, I know people are really going to enjoy this for many months to come as it's in our archive and in our author's clinic. Thank you for all that you've provided in this episode with me. And the same goes here, Kathy. We love you. And we're so grateful that you're here with us. Everyone appreciates you. And thank you, everybody, for being here with us on another episode of Writing Works Wonders. Thank you for joining us today at Writing Works Wonders. Kathy and I are thrilled to spend time with you. Now tap on that button that says subscribe so you will not miss our show. We also have a donate button and that's to help with the expenses that Kathy and I incur in order to keep this show and podcast going. There's a link there that you can tap on that will take you directly to our website at www.writingworkswonders.com. There you will find all the information we talked about today along with show notes and so much more. We want you to feel encouraged and inspired to know the wonder of writing. And until next time, our friends, keep on writing.